0: This episode of Zero Brightness is brought to you by you. You can head to patreon.com slash zerobrightness to sign up to support the show directly and get bonus content multiple times per week. Thank you to everyone who supports the show, and I look forward to meeting more of you soon. I'm not very good at holidays. Besides the fact that I don't like most of them, I also find it hard to enjoy them. There's always this lingering pressure, like I need to make the most of the day, or I need to make sure everyone involved is happy and having a good time. It's something that I feel so strongly that I usually just end up avoiding holidays altogether if I have any control over it. To me, it's usually just another day. I've definitely had that experience throughout my life with one of the few holidays that i actually really really love which is of course halloween now throughout the course of my life i have tried every sort of halloween activity from trick-or-treating when i was a kid to going to crazy house parties as an adult to plain packed bars you name it i've tried it all and i still think my favorite way to spend halloween is the way i used to spend it in high school which was locked inside my room just marathoning horror movies. I can still distinctly remember the tiny TV-VCR combo that I had in my bedroom and the way I used to sit on the floor way too close to it, swapping tapes in and out all night on Halloween. You know, stuff that you might have found at a clearance sale at a video store or that you could reliably find giant bins of at the local Walmart. You know, Evil Dead, Halloween, Night of the Living Dead, Stuff like that. It was just always so fun to be locked in my own little world, mainlining horror movies away from everything else that was going on in my life. When the PS2 finally moved into my room, this ritual got a lot more exciting because now I could watch DVDs, which expanded the scope out to big budget, glitzy horror movies, Obscure Japanese stuff and everything in between. Seriously, it was a thing. It was like, don't call me on Halloween. I'm busy by myself. Of course, something else happened when the PS2 moved into my room, which is that I realized I could also be playing horror games all night if I wanted to. And so a new tradition was born that, you know, usually happened alongside watching a bunch of horror movies, which was playing little bits and pieces of these larger, macabre adventures that I was so obsessed with at the time and continue to be to this day. So the premise of this episode, this Halloween special from someone who is notoriously bad at celebrating holidays is to kind of give you guys a little bit of a feel for that ritual that I think I have perfected over the years. The feel of hanging out with me in a weird, dark basement, watching horror movies, and playing horror video games. So what I'm going to do is pick some of my favorite second-wave PS2-era horror games, talk about them, and contrast them with some of my favorite classic halloween season movies you know the stuff that you just have to watch when the leaves are falling and halloween is just around the corner as a disclaimer games being mentioned in this episode are not precluded from getting their own full-length episode some of them are actually coming very soon and are already in the planning stages so don't worry this isn't a substitute for a full episode about these games it's just a little walk down memory lane, a way for me to talk about some of my favorites and do something special for the season. When I came up with this premise, one of the first games I thought of was Siren for the PS2. Not just because I played hours and hours and hours of it as a teenager, but also because I think it is one of the most impressively cinematic or cinema minded horror games that I've ever played. If you're not familiar, Siren was a 2003 release from Sony, uh, who developed and published the game. It was directed by Keichiro Toyama, who is the director of the original Silent Hill, and at the time, this was kind of the big headline of the game. You know, one of the architects of one of the most famous and enduring survival horror games of all time is back to take another stab at the genre. And it really was marketed as sort of like the ultimate survival horror game. Something that was going to challenge fans of the genre, while also serving as a bit of a throwback to that PS1 era of survival horror. And honestly, I'm not sure if they could have picked a worse way to market this game. Because what Siren actually is, is a total inversion of the classic survival horror style of gameplay. It's one that's super bold and experimental and just flat out weird. The central gimmick powering this is the game's sight jacking system. The idea here is that any character can tune into an enemy's frequency and it is done like you're tuning an old-fashioned radio dial and look through the eyes of the enemies in a given stage. You use this to see where your enemies are placed and where they are looking because essentially this is a stealth game. You're meant to sneak by enemies and avoid combat and interaction with enemies as much as possible. Even outside of that central mechanic, the game is constantly tweaking and inverting the systems that you'd expect to see in a survival horror game. For example, the controls have this almost Dragon Quest-like feel to them, where you're able to pull up an interaction menu whenever you want, and that's separate from the examine button. So, you can basically move through the stage, and when you want to pick something up or do a tactical maneuver, you press a different button than you would if you were just trying to, like, look at something or examine something. When you combine this with the fact that the game has a super dynamic follow camera, and the fact that the game actually moves surprisingly fast, meaning that if you're spotted or if an enemy tries to engage you, you need to react quickly, it gives the game a totally different feel from a classic survival horror game like Silent Hill. Now, that's interesting because at first glance, the game does look a lot like Silent Hill. I mean, it's got the same kind of blocky character models and, you know, big loping animation, There's fog everywhere. The game is technically set in a dilapidated village, this time a sort of rustic Japanese one instead of an almost 50s style American one like in Silent Hill. But the way you play the game couldn't be more different than the way you play Silent Hill. The result of that sightjacking mechanic being the central point of the game is that you play it in a really particular way. Like I said, it's a stealth game, but the way that you map out where your enemies are and where they're supposed to go is by looking through their eyes. At the beginning of every stage and at certain checkpoints along the way, you're going to have to stop, dial in all your sightjacking points, map out where you think the enemies are, and then plan your movements very carefully. Once you have that done, you need to just enact your plan as quickly and as efficiently as possible. If you move too slow, you die. If you wait too long, you die. If you make a wrong turn, you die. If you haven't gotten the picture yet, you die a lot in this game. And the way the game is structured, which is also really unique, is set up so that you can die over and over and try stages over and over. The game is broken up into little chunks known as stages, Each one can last anywhere from like 5 to 15 minutes. You're meant to get through each stage, move on to the next one, and revisit them later as you need to. The stages are also organized into loops and days, and they're uh, graphically displayed on a gigantic and sort of confusing flowchart. The end result is that you're supposed to try to map out how things are moving forward in the story and return to certain points to try them again or achieve hidden objectives in order to advance the overall plot and storyline. It's a super interesting way to organize a game like this, not only because it makes the story even more mysterious and interesting because you don't really have a clear picture of what's going on, but also because it allows them to make stages like hyper difficult and punishing because they know that it's very quick and easy for the player to just restart the stage, try it again, and use what they've learned. I'll admit that in my more recent playthroughs of this game, I've emulated it and used save states, but even then, I've only been using save states about like half the time. The other half of the time, I just use the game's uh, normal restarting system because it is actually pretty well tuned to the game's flow. There are some stages that are just so, so, so difficult that it gets really, really annoying, and that's where the save states come into play. So the way I'm describing this super hard game that you're meant to like kind of try over and over and die might make it sound a little bit like uh, (coughs) Dark Souls, which naturally would have you say, hmm, well then how does it work as a horror game, or how does it work as a kind of suspenseful game? And the answer is extremely well, for a reason that should be familiar to you if you are an avid fan of horror movies. The element of the sightjacking system that makes it scary is that you'll see yourself through your enemy's eyes. Whether you're, you know, screwing up in a stage or doing well, you are, without fail, going to see at least your position and be able to pinpoint relative to your enemy where you are. It's kind of hard to describe, I'm not sure if I'm doing a good job of making it sound as unique and weird and creepy as it is, but man, it is really, really effective. And I've always felt that way about it. More recently, I started to think, why is it so effective? And I realized it's because first person has also long been a tactic used in classic horror movies to ratchet up tension and create scares. I'm thinking, of course, of Halloween and Friday the 13th, which are like the two most classic Halloween time movies, right? Like, you gotta watch those on Halloween. Both movies open with pretty iconic scenes of a killer hunting victims that happen from a first-person perspective. In Halloween, it's a pretty iconic long shot, and Friday the 13th, it's a scene that cuts back and forth between campers and a killer. It's a great way to build tension because you know something bad is about to happen, you know what's coming, but you don't know when it's coming. And there's also a disorientation that happens there with cutting between perspectives or watching from a killer's perspective when you know that you're empathizing more with the victims who will appear on screen later. Siren feels like a game built around that core idea. The idea that there isn't one fixed perspective and that you're going to have to see things both from the victim's perspective and the killer's perspective in order to make it through the game. When you figure out the way that you're supposed to play the game and the loop that is most effective in a gameplay sense, it ends up looking a lot like those scenes from Halloween or Friday the 13th or any number of horror movies that do that first person killer stalking scene thing, right? Like you'll get a little bit of the victim sneaking around trying to escape. You'll have to switch over to the killer prowling, stalking, or searching, and you'll cut back and forth between the two. In the end, you're either going to see a grisly death scene or a triumphant escape. Thinking about it in these terms helped me realize a couple things. Number one, Siren isn't clunky for the most part. It is a little bit clunky. But overall, it's not that clunky. It's really more like it's extremely methodical. And it has to be done in a precise way that works. It does really end up making it feel more like uh, Dark Souls game than a classic survival horror game. However, that first-person scare factor really does suck you in, and when you combine it with the game's super, super heavy and oppressive atmosphere, the game creates a lot of tension and dread, much more than any FromSoft game. Another realization I had is that this game is a complete and total inversion of a classic survival horror game, and I think that's why I feel the original marketing of this game was super terrible. Classic survival horror is all about fixed perspective or at least single perspective. Even if it has a follow camera like in Silent Hill 2, a lot of the tension and scares are generated from the fact that you can't see what's going on or you can't see what's coming up ahead. In Siren, you can see what's ahead. In fact, the whole idea is that you can see everything. In little bits and pieces and it's up to you to put it all together into a hole that you can actually use. It feels less like playing a survival horror game and more like editing video. I know this might be kind of weird and maybe a reach for some people but to me, someone who edits video, playing Siren really really feels like piecing together a video in Adobe Premiere. Like, you have access to all these different perspectives, all these different visuals, and it's up to you to piece them together, to put them in the correct order, to make sure everything flows smoothly. So like, when do you decide to stop and page through your different perspectives? When do you decide to make a run for it? When do you decide to stick with that like main character perspective? It really feels like editing video. In that way, the game feels really, really forward-thinking and really, really modern. Revisiting it at Siren feels like a nexus point for all those sub-sub-genres of horror video games that I've talked about on this show. You know, anti-games like Soma or hide-em-ups like Outlast are all inversions of those original survival horror tropes. Changing those things that the player takes for granted like how they interact with the environment or how items work or the role of combat in the game really really drastically changes how the game is played and what the core concepts of the game are. In the aforementioned modern games a lot of them hinge around just taking something out like removing combat and replacing it with puzzle solving or removing item management and replacing it with story. Siren does something similar, but also something a lot more daring and experimental. In a lot of ways, Siren isn't a normal game at all. There are a few parts where it does feel like a normal PS2 action-adventure game, but they're very, very brief, and they're always followed up by a section where you simply can't fight back or where you're given a very slow moving character to weigh you down. They all come back to that core concept of thinking on your feet, being flexible, and being aware of your surroundings and your environment. I think the fact that the devs managed to do that while also keeping that really strong horror element and using a central gimmick that really played up the horror aspect is nothing short of genius. That said, it's pretty obvious why Siren is a cult classic, beyond the fact that it's just super, super weird. It's also really, really difficult. It's extremely obtuse. A lot of its systems are almost impossible to grasp for new players. And that extreme difficulty is going to keep you a bit strategy guide bound as you play through the game. However, I think Siren is totally a game worth playing. That interesting central mechanic combined with the unique structure of the game actually makes it fun to play once you get into the rhythm of it, and the game's masterful use of classic horror aesthetics make it just super satisfying to experience. You know, it's set in this old decayed Japanese village filled with blood and fog, and the game has a super unique look to its character models. Uh, The faces and facial animations are all based off of like video footage of real people, so it has this really strange, uncanny look to it that's really unsettling but also really, really cool. Like I said earlier, the game's a little bit rough around the edges, so sometimes it does look a bit like a PS1 game, but all those textures are super um, high quality and they just look really great. When you combine that with that first-person perspective that you're constantly cutting in and out of, it really does give it a feel like those classic horror films. I already mentioned Halloween and Friday the 13th, which I totally stand by, but the game also has a huge inspiration from J-Horror. Yes, my favorite, J-Horror. Looking into the inspirations behind this game, I found an interview with Keiichi Toyama where he talks about some of the things that inspired it. He mentions an art exhibit where people put on helmets in order to see from each other's perspective, which I think is really interesting, um, especially when he revealed that the original name for the site jacking system and design documents was the site exchange or perspective exchange system. It's just something interesting to think about. But he also revealed that they wanted to make something distinctly Japanese, and they took some influence from the J-horror boom at the time. And I can totally see that within this game. The game uses a lot of like grainy, old-timey filtering and effects, which Silent Hill did as well, but in this game they're kicked up to 11, sometimes during gameplay, definitely when you're sightjacking, and definitely, definitely during the cutscenes. The cutscenes are all slathered in noise and grain and super de-rezzed to the point that they look like weird found footage film reels. To compare it to Western stuff, it does kind of remind me of Sinister, but when we look towards J-Horror, you can see that that was a pretty popular aesthetic at the time. Obviously in foundational films like Ringu, but also in slightly more obscure stuff like *Neroy: the Curse, which I've talked about many times on this show. It's one of my favorite movies, and it's just like a classic found footage horror film. If you like that vibe, Siren has it in spades. It is definitely more of a conventional video game narrative in many ways. Like It follows this huge cast of characters as they try to survive this hellish experience they're all stuck in this weird never-ending night uh, etc 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 but through the presentation and the aesthetics it manages to have a much more cinematic feel to it it manages to conjure up images of all these different films that i've listed everything from halloween to the curse that's a pretty huge swing and returning to the game i found that super super impressive The fact that this weird, little, obscure game could do all of that still blows me away to this day. And, you know, to cut the people who came up with the original promotional campaign a little bit of slack, I do think there is something really important and enticing about how difficult and punishing the game is. It came out in 2003, which is at a time when survival horror was kind of softening a little bit. We're moving away from the original Resident Evil design, where if you use too many items, you're unable to beat the game. And more towards something like Silent Hill 2, where you could bump down the difficulty and kind of cruise through it. Siren really stands out as a game that is super punishing towards the player and demands you to do it right and to do it over and over and over you know at the time i thought that was kind of a hindrance to this game and in certain other games i'll talk about in this episode that element of the game is a hindrance but i actually think in siren it works a lot of that is due to that structure of the game and the fact that a lot of the levels are bite-sized so they are easy to replay and retry over and over and over And I also think it drives home a lot of the weird and different things they were trying with the gameplay elements. So, for example, like they want you to really understand that a certain character you're playing as is helpless. They want you to understand that combat is not an option and that you need to fully utilize the systems in the game. Having played the game now a few times, I really have come to appreciate that element to it. I also really noticed this when I played the sequel, Siren Blood Curse, which was originally on the PS3 and is now available on the PS4 via the PS Now service. Now, that game is really good, it's really fun, and I enjoyed it a lot. But the fact that it was a little more polished, a little easier, a little less punishing... I did find to make the game less engrossing. Those bite-sized levels seemed to really fly by, and I remember booting up one night and suddenly realizing that I had basically beat like half the game. Now that game still has moments of extreme difficulty and unfairness like you'd expect from Siren, but it is a lot more player-friendly, is a lot more user-friendly. And returning to the original game, I found that I kind of like how brutal siren is it adds to the atmosphere it adds to the mood and it really just serves to suck you into the world now once again i am super obsessed with fromsoft games now and it's a new thing for me and i'm all high on the fromsoft pill so maybe take this all with a grain of salt but you heard it here first siren is better than all the other games in the series because it's brutal also side note there is a game in between those two called forbidden siren 2 That was released in Japan and Europe, but not America. I have an ISO of that game, but I've never actually played it. So that's a conversation for another day. Now, if we're talking about forward thinking video games with heavy ties to cinema, then we have to talk about Clock Tower 3. Now, Clock Tower 3 has long been one of my favorites, somewhat improbably if you've been following the show, because I've spent quite a bit of time on this show shit talking Clock Tower. However, I'm really only shit talking the PS1 entries in the series. I think those games are garbage. However, I think the original game on the Super Nintendo is great, and I think Clock Tower 3 is a stone cold classic. Not only that, I think Clock Tower 3 is super super underrated. Clock Tower 3 is a very very weird game that a lot of people have not played. However, at the time of its release, it was a very big deal because it was essentially a big budget Hollywood reboot of the Clock Tower franchise. Clock Tower came out of the gate really strong with the original on the Super Nintendo, which pushed the limits of that console to deliver a really unique point-and-click horror experience that was heavily, heavily inspired by the films of Dario Argento, but soon after, the series kind of descended into the muck. The PS1 entries were janky, weird, not very well put together games that, despite garnering a cult following, are just not very good games. The series went into hibernation for a while and when it re-emerged it was with a big splashy entry known in the west as Clock Tower 3. Now the numbering here gets kind of confusing between the Japanese and American entries. This is actually the fourth game in the series but we're going to call it Clock Tower 3 because that's what it's called, dude. Clock Tower 3 has a bunch of unique things going for it that make it stand out from the pack. The first thing you might notice if you are a film buff is that it is technically directed by Kinji Fukasaku, who is a legendary Japanese director, most famous for the film Battle Royale. Now, I'm pretty sure everybody knows what Battle Royale is, but that's the 2000 J horror film that saw a class of high school students pitted against each other in a survival contest um, slash battle to the death. It's a movie that continues to be relevant to this day because, I don't know, every like 10 years, someone decides to basically just wholesale rip it off. I thought we were past this when the Hungry Games happened, but now the Squid Game happened and we did another Battle Royale. I don't know, man. Looking forward to the next weird Battle Royale rip in 2031. I'm sure that one's going to be great and I won't watch it. Kenji Fukasaku also directed Tora, Tora, Tora and Battles Without Honor and Humanity, aka the first in the Yakuza Paper series. So we are dealing with a super heavy hitter here, and I will forgive you if the name Kinji Fukasaku doesn't make you freak your fucking beak just by hearing it, but you do need to go look him up. You need to watch some of his movies. He's the man. Now, his role in Clock Tower 3, as I mentioned earlier, is a bit of stunt casting because he directed the cinematics in the game and not the actual game. As I'm sure you guys all know, a film director and a game director have very different jobs. Clock Tower 3 is interesting because it had a film director for the cinematics and a game director for the game. Namely, that was Tomoshi Sadamoto from Sunsoft, the developers of Clock Tower 3 that said the fact that they brought in a japanese cinema legend to direct the cutscenes scenes should tell you pretty much everything you need to know about clock tower 3 which is once again it's the splashy over-the-top big budget reboot of the clock tower franchise and dude it works If you're familiar with the Clock Tower games, you know that these are games built around running and hiding from an enemy that is constantly stalking you. These games eschew combat in favor of exploration and thoughtful traversal of maps in order to avoid said enemy and escape with your life. The original Clock Tower was quirky, to say the least. It was kind of a point-and-click adventure game that used the tropes of a side-scrolling action adventure game. The follow-ups attempted to slightly tweak the formula and add in 3D graphics, but the combination of all those things made the games clunky and just unfun. Clock Tower 3, however, represents a full ground-up remake of the Clock Tower style of game. In this game, you're essentially presented with multiple small maps throughout which a killer stalks you. In order to progress, you'll have to find items and solve puzzles, all while being chased and hunted by the killer. As you explore, you'll find some small pre-programmed events you can use to slow down or stop the killer. You'll also find hiding places where you can chill out for a second wait for the killer to pass. These function almost exactly as they would many years later in games like Outlast, where you basically go into a first-person mode, you can see the killer stalking around, searching for you, and there's kind of a random chance element of whether or not the killer is going to leave you alone or rip you out of said hiding spot. This is complemented by the fact that your character doesn't have a health bar. They have a panic meter, which, man, do I find that relatable. The way the panic meter works is that it fills up as you're attacked more, take more damage, or just surprised more by the killer. If it fills up, you go into panic mode where your movement is erratic and restricted. You can't fully control your character, and if you get hit, you die. Now, I've always thought Clock Tower was forward-thinking, not because it hit upon these basic Outlast-style ideas many years before Outlast, but because of the way that all these things are implemented and the way that all these gameplay elements come together. Clock Tower isn't a game that just pulls out combat and throws in some hiding mechanics. Instead, it combines more traditional survival horror puzzle solving and exploration with the feel of a tense chase sequence to make a game that is, at the end of the day, just super, super intense. Clocktower isn't a game that is overly scary or even overly difficult, but every moment of Clock Tower is tense. The fact that you're being hunted and chased and even if the killer lets up, you know that they might bust through a door at any moment gives the game a super high tension feeling and it's one that not a lot of other games can match. It's also easy to see why. There are elements of Clock Tower 3 that could become really, really repetitive and dull. Like in certain areas, you can kind of get stuck in a loop while the killer is chasing you. Even if they leave you alone, they'll come back. You find yourself continually hiding, going through doors, running away in a way that's really dull and unfun. However, when the game is actually firing on all cylinders, it's so tense And it's so scary that there are very few games like it. I think the secret sauce to Clock Tower 3, the thing that really makes it stand out though, doesn't really have anything to do with the gameplay. It's the game's tone and aesthetic. Clock Tower 3 is fucking ridiculous. I mean, what a weird, bizarre, over-the-top game. So, if you're familiar with the Clock Terry series, you know that it's heavily inspired by Dario Argento and, in general, Giallo films. These were Italian slasher, murder mystery type movies, many of which had a super striking aesthetic. They were really popular in the 60s and 70s, so there was a lot of bold technicolor. Visuals and really creative, almost theatrical or stage style framing. A lot of chiaroscuro, light and dark, crazy colors, etc., etc., etc. The first few Clock Tower games played as almost direct remakes of specific films from Argentos over while pulling in influence from other Giallo movies. Clock Tower 3, however, flips this on its head. Like I said, and I'll say it again, it's the big budget Hollywood reboot of a Clock Tower game. It's also one that pulls in a wider European influence. So in addition to the Argento influence, we also see a huge influence from Hammer horror films. If you're not familiar with Hammer, this was a British company that pumped out iconic yet low budget horror films throughout the 60s and 70s they're most well known for their dracula films which starred christopher lee as dracula however they have a ton of crazy movies weird obscure some amazing some total garbage but all of them have this kind of very over-the-top campy gothic vibe to them that I think maps perfectly onto what Clock Tower 3 is doing. Clock Tower 3 definitely marks an aesthetic left turn for the series. It's simultaneously a lot more British feeling like a Hammer Horror movie, as well as a lot more Japanese feeling, which I'll explain in a second. The setup is that a teenage girl gets a letter while away at boarding school from her mother saying that, you know, something bad is about to happen and she should go into hiding. Instead of listening to her mother's advice, she returns home to find her family's weirdly huge English manor empty, save for a weird, mysterious man who kind of looks like Uncle Fester in formal wear. After a very menacing encounter with him... She's magically teleported to World War II era London during the famous bombing that raised the city. I think this sequence is when most players would realize that, yeah, they hired someone to direct the cutscenes in this game. They're huge, they're splashy, they feel like a big budget movie. Sure, they're done in the style of a PS2 game with all the technological limitations that that entails, but they're super impressive. And especially at the time, I remember being blown away by the cutscenes in this game. After that, you're introduced to the core loop of the game, which is basically that the protagonist, Alyssa, needs to move through each map that she's teleported to evade the killer while solving the central mystery of the map that usually involves bringing closure to a ghost that is stuck there due to unfinished business there are also smaller ghosts there that you can help by finding their personal belongings and returning them This element of the game introduces one of the first super ridiculous things you'll see, which is that the game almost has this ghost whisper element to it, where, like, you're trying to help these lost souls, and the cutscenes after you help them are super weird and cheery and positive in a way that seems really unexpected when contrasted with some of the brutal violence in this game. Once again, that Argento influence is still super strong, so you'll see a giant guy with a hammer just straight up Murder a 12 year old girl? Like, yes, that happens. Also, you'll see that same ghost ascend happily to heaven while waving at you cheerily. Man, it is weird. Weirder yet is something that happens at the end of each of these stages where your character kind of undergoes a quasi Sailor Moon style magical girl transformation. And fights the killer in a very weird and unexpected boss battle. So, yeah, I said this game doesn't have combat, and for like 90% of it, it doesn't, but it has these weird little boss battles. And before each one, your character gets a magical bow and arrow and is then tasked with taking out the killer, who you just spent, you know, around an hour running and hiding from and just being totally terrified by. Yeah, I don't know what to say. It's such a bizarre choice, but it also feels like perfectly in line with what's going on in this game. Another thing you'll notice about some of the interstitial cutscenes is that despite being once again very competently directed and having a lot of like technical muscle behind them, some of them come off as really, really odd and goofy. The game has a lot of mocap, and some of it looks really good, and some of it looks really ridiculous. There's one scene early on in the game that really stands out where, like, one of Alyssa's old classmates shows up. It's so over animated and over the top that it feels like it's supposed to be an anime cutscene, but rendered in this, once again, quasi realistic style. It's so fucking weird, man. And, like, I feel like that's the really Japanese element that I alluded to earlier. There are some really over-the-top elements of action and comedy that you might see in an anime or in an anime adaptation uh, that show up in this game and give it a really, really strange, unreal vibe. Now, you could level that against the game as a criticism, but... Personally, I think it's fucking awesome. I think all of those elements make this game super, super entertaining. And I also think the game itself is really fun to play. I think despite being a game that is trying to stress you out and trying to push you to your limit while playing it the game is kind of breezy all the systems in the game work really well the controls are really good it uses single stick relative controls which a lot of other horror games at the time were either not using or just experimenting with i know fail frame two and three both use that control style for reference and yeah it just makes the game kind of a joy to play I'll also say once again, shout out to anyone emulating it because you can also use save states and save yourself a little bit of time with some of the more frustrating parts of the game. I also, once again, want to say that I have a huge amount of respect for this game for figuring out that you can't just delete combat from a horror game and expect it to work. You have to replace it with something. And I think that in Clock Tower 3, part of the magic of the game, the glue that makes everything come together, is that pure tension. Just how relentless the enemy is that's stalking you. Just how tense the exploration and puzzle solving in the game is made by the presence of that enemy. The fact that the game is always pushing you forward. It has such a powerful momentum and it has such a great feeling of suspense and terror i think this is also why it pulls off its film references so masterfully like it's not just a game that nods towards argento films like suspiria or phenomenon or nods towards like hammer horror movies or nods towards anime it actually gives you the feeling of watching those movies in the same way you might see something really gruesome or shocking on screen and gasp, or the same way that a lingering shot can build tension. This game really winds you up and tries to get under your skin by ratcheting up that tension more and more and more. And it's super successful. You know, it's not a very long game, It's not a very complicated game, but I think it does what it does so well that the time you spend with it is time well spent. Another personal favorite of mine is Fatal Frame 3. Fatal Frame 3 is a really odd game. It's both the end point of the original trilogy and the end of that original run that fans of the series like myself hold in super high regard, and it's also kind of where the series started to go off the rails. At first glance, Fatal Frame 3 doesn't really do much with the core mechanics of the series. In fact, it feels kind of old school to a fault. There's some callbacks to the first game, like removing auto-aiming until you unlock it later in the game. There's also a lot of environments that return from the first game, and with them, the cramped design that relies very, very heavily on fixed camera angles. I don't know if it's a feel or a visual design thing, but going from 2, which I played not that long ago, to 3 feels like stepping back in time to the PS1 era, especially in terms of how many fixed camera angles there are and the way that you need to rack your brain to navigate them with the game's relative control style. It makes the intro of this game kind of weird and a little bit hard to get into. But once you move past that, you see that this game is actually kind of brilliant. The big change to Fatal Frame 3 is in the game's structure and story. The game is now broken up into stages that take place in dreams, in between which you'll be going back to your house to do tasks that both move the story forward and serve as a little bit of a slice of lifestyle reprieve from the main gameplay those dream sections are largely what you'd expect from a fatal frame game especially if you've played the first and second entries in the series but mixing them up with somewhat lighter and more slow paced gameplay works so 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 well in this game and it's really really unexpected like i think Fatal frame 2 which is still my favorite in the series worked because it just kind of fully immersed you in this dark and dreamlike world where the future and the past were laid on top of one another and in fail frame three it initially seems like they're kind of trying to subvert that by breaking your immersion by pulling you in and out of those sequences but the way that it helps the game's pacing is huge some of those sections in two that could kind of drag on just don't in fail frame three This is especially noticeable because you'll be revisiting areas from the first two games and plot lines. So you'll be seeing a lot of familiar things. You'll be reliving some things that you've already seen, but through either a slightly altered or totally different perspective. And man, it just works so, so well. A lot of the things that it pulls from the first game are also done really, really well. Not only the reuse of areas with subtle tweaks, but also the return of the lore binder. You may remember this if you heard our episode on the first fail frame game, but that game had a super strange and complicated backstory that was all mapped out in the main character's notebook and you could go and look at and inspect it at any time while you were playing. That returns in Fail Frame 3, which is great because the narrative in this game is completely insane. It's basically a plotline that wraps up all three games into one coherent universe and unveils new information about the stories of the previous games. The setup is also simple yet effective. The main character or seemingly the main character of the game is Rey. A photographer who had recently lost her partner before the start of the game, and right at the start of the game, starts to experience weird paranormal phenomena. Namely, she finds herself teleported into a weird otherworldly manner to which she returns every night when she goes to sleep. She also appears to be wrapped up in a curse tied to said manner and the maidens of that manner, which should sound pretty familiar to anyone who's played Fatal Frame 2. Now, despite the mechanics of this game not being much improved over previous entries in the series, the visuals and the presentation are hugely improved. And that goes deeper than just graphics, although the graphics in this game are great. It's actually the way the story is presented and the cutscenes are directed. Just like in Clock Tower 3, it's immediately apparent that there's been a huge bump in quality in the direction of the cutscenes. I mean, the cutscenes in this game are awesome, and that's coming from me, who famously hates cutscenes. The use of effects, the weird otherworldly pacing, and the scares are all fantastic. It really does feel like you're watching a Japanese horror movie in between playing a Japanese horror game. I also think that those cinematic moments hit super hard because of the change in pace to the game the way that you unravel the central mystery of the game is so much slower and more methodical as compared to previous entries in the series that it does make it feel much more like a real j-horror movie i know i've talked about this movie a lot but i feel like this game really gives me the same vibes as the first few Zhuan movies right there's the two made for tv films and then the first theatrical film and its sequel. Those are usually referred to as Juon, Juon Two, Juon the Grudge, and Juon the Grudge Two. My favorite of those is Juon the Grudge, the first theatrical film, because it's just such a great story. It's so tightly wound and well told. And just like this game, it finds ways to intersperse more normal, dramatic moments or a slice of life bits with really, really crazy, insane, and horrifying stuff. Also like this game, it's a haunted house tale that plays with time and space and has a huge dose of surrealism dropped into it. I think that's one of my favorite things about on the Grudge is that when you get to the end, you realize that there's like a time loop component and things are often laid on top of each other in a way that really, really reminds me of every Fatal Frame game, but especially Fatal Frame 3. Anyone who's played this game knows that the storytelling is super elegant. Now, despite having some clunky dialogue, some pedestrian cutscenes, and the beginning of the series, like, slightly horny vibe, it's not super strong in this game, but it's definitely there. Despite all that, the storytelling itself is very, very elegant. Like I said, it finds a very slow and methodical way to unravel the central mystery and bring the player into it so they feel like they are unraveling that mystery themselves, while at the same time also managing to make something that's really dense, complex, and multi-layered. I mean basically at the center of the story there is a character who is trying to figure out what happened to their partner who disappeared, there's another character who has a similar storyline that we already saw play out in the first game, and there's a third character that kind of ties them together. On top of that, there's also auxiliary characters, small pieces of lore, and just a whole bunch of stuff for you to keep track of in that notebook. I think it's genius because it isn't just trying to take influence from something like J Horror or those movies that we're all familiar with. It's trying to actually give you the experience of playing one of those films, and I think it does it super, super well. The slice of life stuff and like wandering around your house, taking pictures of your cat, etc makes the game feel more like a film where you might see those aspects of a character it's not just always go 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 in a horror movie and specifically in a j horror movie another element of j horror that i think fatal frame 3 does better than any other horror game from this era is surrealism when we talk about movies like juan or ringu which you could also compare this game to We talk a lot about the nuts and bolts of them, the stylistic choices, and we talk about them sort of as haunted house or ghost movies, but in my opinion, part of what makes J-horror so special is that it has this really, really dark surrealism to it that we don't see in every genre of horror film. Lots of horror films, even those that deal with the paranormal and the supernatural, don't really have a surrealist bend to them. We might see things that boggle the mind or that would not happen in real life, but they're still pretty straightforward, linear movies. The way that things are presented or the way that the story is told is still linear and straightforward. It doesn't really try and mess with the viewer or change your perception of reality. Surrealist works, however, do that they try to mess with the viewer, they try to show you things that may or may not be real, and they try to show you that there might be different layers of reality stacked on top of each other. For example, Ringu, and in the remake The Ring, famously has elements coming out of a digital or analog space into the real world, which is just a super crazy, horrifying, and awesome idea. In Juon, it kind of messes with the idea that within this one quote-unquote haunted house, Time might be stretched or dilated, and different realities might be layered on top of each other so that multiple timelines could be happening at once, and one character could end up interacting with another character from another timeline. I think that this kind of surrealism was always implied within the Fatal Frame games, and even some of the games that were heavily inspired by them, like Kuon. You know, in these games, you might take a picture of something, and randomly something else would open up. The solutions to puzzles were often strange and abstract and didn't make a lot of sense. However, I don't think it's until Fatal Frame 3 that we really see a deep sense of surrealism pervade the whole work. Number one, there's the idea of flipping back and forth between dreams and reality. It's a classic trope. We've all seen it before. I'm not going to say it's the most unique original thing. but It works really, really well, and it changes the whole tone of the game. Also, right from the jump, we see an interaction between the real world and the dream world. Certain things that happen in the dream world continue to linger on into the real world, and vice versa. The characters are not only trying to unravel the central mystery and try and find their way out of this curse, they're also trying to figure out what the fuck is going on and why this curse can seemingly seep out of dreams and into the real world. And the awesome thing about this game is you don't really get a concrete answer. You do get a lot of answers to the story. It wraps up nicely, but the actual like metaphysics of Fatal Frame really aren't explained. It leaves a lot of stuff super weird and mysterious. It's not just a simple tale of find cursed item, bury the body, figure out how to end the curse. And that's why I would compare it more to Juan than Ringu. Ringu is that kind of tale at its core. And that's the power of it, right? Like that's not a criticism of Ringu. One of the most amazing things about it is that there's a really simple human choice and sacrifice that each person has to make to survive. In Zhuan, it's more like this cosmic horror hell world that never ends, a never ending loop of suffering that's all tied to bad things happening in a certain place. If you like that kind of story, Fatal Frame 3 does that really, really well. It feels like a J-horror movie, maybe one that doesn't have like a huge budget or the greatest director in the world, but it's super fun to experience. And there are some really good emotional beats and really good points in the story that land very well. And I think it's, once again, due to the developer's choice to focus on that emotional story, focus on solving that central mystery and not focus as much on revolutionizing the game's mechanics or pointing it in a different direction. This was a really fun game to revisit for me, not just because I love it, but because we're about to get a Fatal Frame 4 reissue, I believe, on the Nintendo Switch that should be out by the time this episode is out. So, you know, a lot of people have differing opinions on that game. I'm excited to play it, but... Either way, if you do want to try a game that feels like a crystallization, if not a perfection, of the original Fatal Frame style of game, you can't go wrong with Fatal Frame 3. And if you're a J-horror head like myself, this one's a no-brainer. You've got to play it. Alright, let's do one more. Rule of Rose. Rule of Rose has been a pretty legendary game since its release in 2006, although it's been for different and varying reasons. Now before it was released, it actually garnered a bunch of controversy and even got banned in Europe, which immediately made the game kind of a collector's item and a bit of a cult hit. Now I really do mean collector's item because the print run on this game was super, super low. I remember before it came out I had seen previews and I was super psyched because in 2006 there were not a lot of old school survival horror games coming out and at that time I was actually working at Electronics Boutique and I knew that the pre-order system was really bugged so I put in a bunch of fake pre-orders to try and get one copy of the game shipped to our store because that's kind of how they would do it like If there was a release coming out and your store didn't have enough pre-orders, they just wouldn't send you the pre-orders that you got and you'd have to send people to other stores. So I put in like 10 pre-orders of this game and got one single copy that showed up at the store and I didn't get called or anything. I just showed up for work and I was like, oh shit, it's Roll of Rose. The rarity of the game combined with the fact that it was banned made it like immediately accrue value, something which it would continue to do over the next decade plus. And now the game is, I think, worth like almost a grand. Super crazy. But what's really crazy about all that to me is that at its core, Rule of Rose is a really fascinating but flawed game. It's not like a lost masterpiece that everybody needs to play. And it's also not just like a shitty game that's famous because it's rare. It's somewhere right in the middle between those two poles. And it's always been a little bit of a pet obsession of mine and something that I've been continually fascinated by. So Rule of Rose, hmm, it's kind of hard to describe on any level. It's a really, really weird game. But let's talk about the tone and the aesthetic first, because I think that's a little bit easier to describe. Rule of Rose is kind of like a surrealist horror period piece it's set in the UK in the 1930s similar to Clock Tower 3 I don't know why all these obscure PS2 horror games are set in the like in the UK in the 30s but I digress um, it's kind of like a surrealist period piece set in the UK in the 30s and its tone borrows heavily from Brothers Grimm which is what the developers cite but to me it reads a lot more like Edward Gorey I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you're probably familiar with Edward Gorey, but if you're not, you should look it up. Um, He's an artist. He became famous for these basically grim, illustrated children's book style stories that are really actually dark and messed up horror stories. You know, they're essentially aimed at adults, but they use that tone and style of like a kid's story. And yeah, when I was in my late teens, uh, you know, kind of starting college, I was obsessed with Edward Gorey. It's been a mainstay amongst, like, you know, people who like gothy shit forever. It's also probably most notable now as being a huge influence on Tim Burton. Tim Burton even had his own weird series of, like, knockoff Edward Gorey comics. I think we're called Oyster Boy, if I'm remembering correctly. Like, have you seen those? Those are just Edward Gorey fan fiction. You should go check out Edward Gorey. You know, he's got a bunch of books. Um, They've been collected and reissued many times over the years. They're great. But the whole point of it is to kind of use the tone and style of a children's book and specifically like a fairy tale or a morality play um, to tell a horror story. And obviously those original Brothers Grimm stories that developers cite were kind of like the origin point of that style, which is namely stories that were aimed at children as morality tales, but that were super dark and horrifying and used horror and terror as an inspiration for children to learn the morality of the story. So when you wrap all those things together, you kind of get the tone and style of Rule of Rose, which is that it has this very gothic and ornate style that mixes in the kind of arch storytelling and complex framing of a fairy tale with also the visual aesthetic of something from the 30s. You know, you could think of like Boardwalk Empire and the way that everything was kind of like ornate, overdone. There's elements of art deco and neo-gothic. Everything is just very, very ornate. And it's just awesome. It creates such a great vibe, just like from the very beginning of the game. The fact that you're seeing these kind of rustic environments that are also very beautiful and gothic mixed with a storytelling style that loves to use voiceover text on screen cinematics it just makes the game feel very artfully put together in terms of its visual presentation and storytelling the cinematics also deserve a huge shout out I think that's another commonality between just about every game that I've covered for this episode is that they have crazy beautiful well-directed cinematics I think One interesting thing about this time in horror games, and specifically in survival horror games, was that as we got to the end of classic survival horror, devs were not trying to necessarily marry the gameplay to the cinematics, but they were trying to push both in different directions. So you get a lot of games that have some pretty old school gameplay, but have these super beautiful, well-directed, forward-thinking, and at the time, very shocking um, cinematics. So games like this and Fatal Frame 3 almost are more fun to watch than to play um, because those cinematics are so, so, so good. And to me, they always felt like they were kind of on another level from the gameplay. Also, like Fail Frame 3, the storytelling in this game is fantastic. Rule of Rose has a crazy, crazy story. It's one that takes a long time to digest it's a lot to take in it is legitimately very shocking and disturbing at times i think although the game was definitely unfairly banned in europe um the claims made against it that it showed some sort of like sexual situations involving children were just not true and if you play the game you see that that like isn't true However the game is openly like cruel and disturbing and it's constantly messing with the player and showing them things that are legitimately upsetting. Like there are scenes of kids bullying each other that kind of veer into the realm of torture. There are scenes of animals being tortured. There's a suggestion of animals being killed and people being killed in ways that are just really cruel and unusual and just flat out fucked up. Like It's a very disturbing game, but also at the core of it, it's a super, super interesting game, and I think it actually has something interesting to say or something interesting to present the player. So let me try and break it down, because like I said, there's a lot going on here, but essentially the premise of Rule of Rose is you play as an adult woman who is somehow thrust into this strange situation. There really is no explanation for this at the beginning of the game, where she travels back to an orphanage that she clearly is familiar with or has some sort of connection to, but the game doesn't tell you what that is, and she's just constantly confused and upset by everything happening around her. When she shows up, she finds creepy kids with bags on their head, um, seemingly beating each other up. And soon thereafter is buried alive by said kids. This is another really, really great aesthetic device that the game uses where you're constantly finding little handmade items and props that look like they're made by kids. So there's handwritten signs, drawings everywhere. The bags that the kids wear over their heads are adorned with little drawings that seem to be done in crayon. And the environments are covered in weird scribblings and graffiti by the kids. It really sets the tone. It's awesome, and when you combine it with that kind of fairy tale storytelling style, it just creates a really, really strong vibe. Another thing that I have to shout out is the fantastic music in this game. Holy shit, holy shit, y'all. The music in this game is so, so, so good. Shout out to the composer, Yutaka Minobi. Um, Wow, it's just so good. So, it's basically like string quartet music and it plays throughout the entire game, but it's super, super dynamic. You know, it goes from whisper quiet to super loud. It goes from super creepy and almost more of a soundscape kind of thing, as created by, once again, just a simple string quartet setup to really rich, romantic themes. There's like a main theme in the game that's actually sung in English that sounds like kind of an old 30s like torch song or ballad Um, and that theme gets repurposed throughout the game and replayed by the string quartet and it always just sounds so amazing I mean just the way that the soundtrack is woven into the game is also really really amazing you know it uses those pause and gaps in the music to just cleanly loop so as you're wandering around and exploring you really feel like you're inside of this 1930s like period piece with this really rich and engrossing music it's just easily top five video game soundtracks of all time for me i love it so 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 much okay now where was i oh yeah so after she finds the kids with the bags on their head she gets buried alive you know classic goof and when she comes to she's now on an airship once again this is like a 1930s style zeppelin and the plot and structure of the game are kind of laid out from there Basically, there's this group on the airship called the Aristocrats Club. It's kids from the orphanage, and everyone from the orphanage seems to be on this airship, including like the staff, you know, teachers, cleaners, etc., etc. And this club seems to be a weird pecking order or caste system for the kids in the orphanage, modeled after real-world socio-political ideas. So you see terms like bourgeoisie and like, you know, titles like duchess that actually appear within the class structure. Each month, members of this club have to find a gift and basically give it as an offering to the club in order to cement their membership. And they need to curry favor with the other members to not be bumped down the caste system. This is basically the central drama of the game. The characters fighting with each other, trying to outsmart each other and just getting into fights with each other, et cetera, et, cetera, et cetera. But there's also this element of punishment that rears its head over and over in the game. Just like in the intro, when you are buried alive by the kids, those sorts of torturous punishments are meted out by those at the top of the aristocracy throughout the game. And those are the scenes that got this game banned in Europe, you know, like, A scene where a kid rubs another kid with a dead rat or, you know, just scenes of kids hurting each other and committing violent acts against each other. Once again, it's super weird and it's super disturbing and fucked up. There's really no way to like downplay or soft pedal how messed up and creepy that aspect of this game is. But once again, it's also wrapped up in really, really good storytelling that has a point at the center of it. Now to talk about the storytelling for a second, I think there's so many cool things that this game does. One of my favorites is that it uses that storybook or fairy tale style to create a really strong sense of dread within the game. So one thing that it does, for example, is that it will give you a storybook at the beginning of each chapter. And the storybook slowly gets filled in with the events that are happening in the game. But at the beginning, you do get sort of an outline of what's going to happen in the chapter. And your character within the storybook is referred to as the unlucky girl. So as you're reading the story, you're kind of getting a feel that, oh, something really bad is going to happen to me or a character that I like in this chapter. I wonder what it's going to be. And once again, this calls back to that Edward Gorey style where it's like, you know, something bad is going to happen and you're just kind of sitting there waiting for it to happen. It's a really interesting take on the child in danger trope, which is something I've talked about on the show before, but like it's something that horror movies love to do and horror games have recently started to pick up on. But like if you take a vulnerable character like a child and put them in danger, it immediately makes the viewer Tense, scared, and uncomfortable because you don't want anything bad to happen to a kid or you don't want anything bad to happen to, like, an animal, right? This game uses that tactic a lot, but also most of the, like, villains in the game or the people that are perpetrating this cruelty are children. So it puts you in just such a weird headspace where you're like, oh my my god, God, I'm so worried about about the kids. kids. And also you're like, man, fuck those kids. (laughs) The other thing I find super fascinating about this game is... Once you figure out what the story is sort of about at its core, a lot of the choices to the structure and style become really, really fascinating. And I'll try and explain this without spoilers. I don't think these are spoilers at all for the game, but at the beginning of the game, you probably noticed that your character is an adult and everyone else in the game are kids. It's weird. It's weird right away, and it's probably even weirder like the first time you play the game, because you're like, wait, what's going on? But looking back, I think that's a really cool choice for a couple reasons. Number one, it heightens the surreal element of the game, which is very strong throughout the game. Like, once again, that fairy tale aspect adds this kind of overlay of surrealism to the whole story. For example, you know, the main character will talk to inanimate objects and they'll talk back. But it's all done in text and maybe a little bit of animation. Like it's not explicitly like, oh, this thing is alive and it's magic. You kind of know that there's an element of unreality here. And that unreality is only heightened by having the main character be an adult and everyone else be kids. It reminds me a lot of the TV show Pen15, if you guys have seen that show. Um, I love that show. I think it's genius. But, you know, the core gimmick of it is that two 30-something women are playing themselves in middle school and the rest of the kids on cast are actual middle schoolers, there's just this weird disconnected unreality to it that actually manages to heighten the story and make it better. It also drives home what I think the core theme of the game is, which is the main character kind of revisiting past trauma. And that's something that I appreciate a lot more now than I did when I originally played this game. I think so many elements of this game are just bog-standard survival horror, which I will talk about shortly, that you kind of get distracted by it, and you start to look at the plot twists as, oh, it's just, you know, where's the story going? What's happening in the story? But when you revisit the game, you kind of realize that all of these different storytelling elements, like having the main character be an adult and having them kind of get these cryptic hints about what's going to happen next in the story... All point back to the fact that it's a story about a character revisiting trauma that they've experienced and bad things that have happened in their life and trying to understand it or make sense of it. It's a super, super tragic story on every level, especially once you get to the end and you figure out what happened, you figure out what all the details mean, what all those hints and clues mean. Um, It's just a super tragic tale, and I think that those storytelling choices only heighten it and make it better. That tragic element is another great thing in the game. I mean, just from the very beginning, like, once again, making all of the other characters kids, it makes them immediately sympathetic, because there's a lot of them that are cruel and evil and just kind of gross, but at the same time you know that they're just kids, They're kids that are inside an orphanage. I don't know if I mentioned that earlier. That's really funny. I think I did mention that, but yeah, it's set like in an orphanage. Kids that are stuck in this orphanage. And so, you know, right away that like a lot of their dysfunction or malice or whatever just comes from the fact that they're lost, that they've probably experienced abuse. And it makes them immediately tragic and sympathetic. Even if you come to hate them at times in the story. I think that's another thing this game does pretty well is suggesting really disturbing stuff without being super overt or gross about it like there are abusive headmasters there are abusive staff and it is suggested that they did abuse in some way or another the kids in this orphanage but i they kind of use allegory they kind of use that fairy tale setting and style to suggest it without showing anything or even like explicitly being like, oh, this, you know, is this or kind of showing any gross scenes of assault or anything like that. Like they toe the line and it feels like they do it because they want the storytelling to be good, not because they're trying to get that, you know, rating they want from Sarah or whatever. And clearly they they didn't get the rating they wanted from, Western review boards, and yeah, they ran into a lot of trouble because of that. So I've been talking about the story, the presentation, the aesthetic, the banging soundtrack. And you're probably asking yourself, well, what about the gameplay? And there's a reason I've put it off. And here it is, guys. Rule of Rose <laughs> plays like shit. It is broken. It is janky. It is incredibly poorly implemented and put together. It's like barely playable (laughs) and it's just such a huge bummer because so many of those other elements of the game, like the story and presentation are so good that it makes you want to play this game and stick with this game. But I would say for most players, the gameplay will stop you dead in your tracks, especially the further into the game that you get. So The early part of the game is not so bad. You know, the basic controls for movement and exploration are pretty good. You will notice early on that some item pickup, like hitboxes are kind of bugged. So when you're trying to pick up items, you'll have to try over and over and over. You might have to face like the opposite direction in order to grab it. You might think, huh, that's a little bit weird, right? But pretty soon they start to introduce combat. And you start to see why this game is super, super janky and hard to play. The combat in this game is awful. It's hard to even describe. It's slow. The range on is awful. The hitboxes make no sense. Like if you thought the hitboxes for picking up items are bad, uh, try the hitboxes for combat. They're worse. And it just totally derails the game. Uh, I remember playing this game for the first time and getting to parts where there was heavy combat and wondering why. Why would they put this in the game? Why would this be an element of the game? Because it is awful. There is no way to defend it. There's no way to defend it as a choice. I won't hear it. It is absolutely awful, especially once boss battles become a part of the game. Oh my God, you guys. It's. It's unbelievable. It's like absolutely unbelievable how terrible the boss battles are, how difficult they are, how just nonsensical, to use that word again, they are. Like, you're trying to aim and attack an enemy and it just makes absolutely no sense. Like, it's worse than the original Resident Evil by quite a bit. And that's the game that started the genre. Like, how, 10 years later, can you just do it so much worse? I... I have no clue. It is truly, truly awful. And that's not the only problem with the game. It's definitely the biggest and the one that will probably make you put it down or walk away from it forever, but it's not the only one. The game also is very frustratingly slow paced. I think if you're a veteran of survival horror, it won't be that big a deal, but even in the early chapters when you're just exploring, finding items, solving puzzles, etc. The fact that the game is so animation heavy, the fact that moving between areas is so slow and so cumbersome does make the game kind of off-putting. I did find that playing this game again with save states was really, really nice because it sped up the game. It allowed me to take breaks whenever I wanted. And I do think that made the game a lot more fun to play and a lot more enjoyable. It also makes those boss battles so so much easier i mean i think the most frustrating boss battles in the game are made a lot a lot more doable when you can just reload from a good save state rather than having to go back reload your game do the walk of shame back to the boss die again etc 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 um so yeah that was a big help but Yeah, even just replaying like the first couple chapters of the game like I did for this episode, which are the best parts of the game because there's almost no combat, it was still frustrating how slow-paced the game was, how confusing it is to navigate, and I definitely found my attention kind of drifting at times when the game kind of opened up a little bit and became more exploration heavy. That's kind of the push and pull of this game, which is that on a nuts and bolts level, It's just like not a good game. Um, It's actually a very bad game. But in terms of its storytelling, its world, it's fantastic. And even those exploration parts of the game are really cool because you get to see the great aesthetic of the world. You know, the orphanage and the airship both look amazing. Going around and finding NPCs is really cool. There's a super great sequence early on in the game where you kind of get the lay of the whole airship and meet pretty much all the characters in the game you get short little cutscenes with them it's super cool like that stuff is all great and i've always wished that this game just didn't have combat and was a little bit faster paced like it's not a very long game as is but i think if this was like a really classic like silent hill one style game that's like three hours no combat all story exploration puzzle stuff like Man, it would be a classic. It would be, like, an all-time classic, I think, because some parts of this game are so, 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 so good. I also think that's one reason why I find it kind of comical that it's, like, such a rare and expensive game now. Because I imagine people who aren't, like, super obsessed with horror movies and horror games and stuff, like, getting this and trying to play it and being like, wait, what the fuck? (laughs) And I know that's just purely a rhetorical exercise because people don't collect video games to play them. I know, but let me have my little dream. So the point of this episode is to contrast video games with horror movies that you might marathon on Halloween. And this game brings to mind so many movies that it's actually hard to narrow it down. The first one that jumps to mind for really obvious and hacky reasons is The Orphanage. Um, You know, the 2000s era Guillermo del Toro produced horror film um, I believe it's a Spanish film. I love that movie. I don't know how you guys feel about that movie. I think some people think it's kind of like a hacky mainstream horror movie. Uh, it does have some weird feel good elements that feel a little bit out of place, but it's so fun. It's got that great, you know, 30s orphanage aesthetic. You know, there's a bunch of little uh, neer do little ragamuffins running around. There's a creepy kid. You know, there's an adult woman trying to make sense of it all and uh, and save the day. And uh, yeah, it's just super fun movie. I think it's a super fun like fall movie. It's a great watch. You know, this game also with its combination of that kind of like high gothic aesthetic with modern production values also reminds me a lot of some Korean movies. I've mentioned that before that I think Korean horror movies have this specific like gothic style with, you know, ornate architecture, great costuming, super lavish classical music wall to wall. Um, that's something I associate really specifically with like Korean horror movies, and so there's a few that come to mind from this game. On the more like low budget, grimy end of the spectrum, you've got uh, Whispering Corridors. Um, that's a series of Korean horror movies that's all about like uh, abuse in the school system that has some very similar themes and aesthetics to Rule of Rose. I also think, of course, you've got the movie Thirst, which is maybe my favorite of those like high gothic. Korean horror movies, Tale of Two Sisters again. Movies I can't, oh God, I can't stop bringing up that movie, and I'm so sorry. But there are some very specific similarities um, between this game and Tale of Two Sisters, uh, especially once you see that uh, bloody bag being dragged on the ground. Like, come on, you're only thinking of one thing. You're thinking of Tale of Two Sisters. And another movie that I think has a lot of parallels with this game, some that I can't really talk about for spoiler reasons, is Fatal Frame. Uh, So I know it's kind of funny. I mean, I talked about a Fatal Frame game earlier and didn't mention the movie. But that's because the Fatal Frame movie, as I've discussed on this show, doesn't have a lot to do with the game and the game series. Uh, It's kind of like its own thing. And I think it reminds me a lot more of Rule of Rose than it does of Fatal Frame. You know, once again, it's got that gothic style. It's got that, you know... You know, it's set in an all-girls school. It's not an orphanage, but it has kind of like a similar setup and a similar vibe. And once you get to the end of the game and the end of the movie, you discover that there are some paralleling themes there that are super, super interesting. And especially those themes of revisiting past trauma are strong in both. And I'm always going to recommend people watch the Fail Frame movie. I think it's really good and you can watch it for free on YouTube. Ever heard of it? So yeah, those are some thoughts on games and movies. That is my basement marathon. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. I enjoyed doing this. I think it was a lot of fun. Little side note before I go, I did uh, 100% emulate all these games, and I encourage you to as well. Most of these games are super expensive and hard to find. And some of them are janky and hard to play And it's a lot more fun if you can save anywhere So yeah, if you have any questions about how I did that Or what I do um, to emulate games Or what my setup is or whatever Feel free to jump in the Discord Or send me a DM or an email I always respond to people about the stuff I always try and help people get this stuff set up Because I think with these more obscure PS2 games I'm always just perennially bummed That more people aren't playing them That they aren't more widely available because i think there's some of the most fascinating some of the most interesting and exciting games from this era but you know they've all gotten to be too rare and worth too much money and for some people maybe too much of a hassle to get running on hardware so i'm always happy to help it's really not that hard to get most these games running and now that i've played so many of them this way i know some of the tips and tricks like pressing F9 when you're playing Siren and the fog graphics glitch happens. That's a freebie. You can have that one for free. That's my Halloween gift to you. Okay, that's going to do it. Happy Halloween, y'all. See you soon.